everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative, storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. All right, everyone, welcome back. It's Brandon Odo back with Brian Bowling. Hello, everybody. And uh, we're going to try to tackle today the question of brain death or death by neurological criteria which can be a little challenging to understand and very much not the sort of thing that you want to wing. Um, and therefore, I think it's important to understand the, the guidelines and standards that exist. And they have changed. There is a new updated recommendation, uh, which has you know, been jointly issued by uh, the American Academy of Neurology, uh, along with uh, SCCM, uh, the Child Neurology Society, the American Academy of Pediatrics. This is an adult and pediatric guideline. And it just updates the the previous guidelines. And who better to help us understand what's changed and how it applies to us than the joint first authors? So we have with us today uh, Dr. Ariane Lewis, who's a, a neurointensivist and professor of neurology and neurosurgery down at NYU Langone, also the director of their neurocritical care unit and uh, also chair of their ethics committee. And Dr. Matthew Kirshen, who's a pediatric neurointensivist and the Associate Director of Pediatric Neurocritical Care at uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So between them and uh, Brian's going to MCS, we're going to try to see what we can learn today. Brian? Hey, so um, welcome to the podcast, guys. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Um, so let's let's start out real quick. So I'm, by way of background, I'm a, a nurse practitioner working in neurocritical care and surgical critical care. So I have this conversation uh, pretty frequently about brain death and what it, what it is, especially with families. And I think one thing that's very confusing, not only to the general public, but also to people in the medical community who don't deal with this on a regular basis, is this concept of brain death um, and how it is similar to and or different from what we think of as traditional cardiac death. So can you just start by walking us through just as a way of background, what what is brain death? Why do we have it? Why do we have guidelines for it? Is it different than cardiac death, um, et cetera? So in the United States, death is a legal construct, and there are two ways to declare death legally. You can either declare death via cardiopulmonary criteria, which is the traditional way that you were referring to, or you can declare death by neurologic criteria, what we also refer to as brain death. Now, when we talk about brain death, brain death occurs after somebody has catastrophic, irreversible, permanent brain injury. And after they have been observed for a period of time and show no recovery of any neurologic function, then they can undergo an evaluation process to see if they will meet criteria for brain death. And that evaluation process includes excluding potential confounders, going through a comprehensive list of prerequisite conditions, having neurologic exams and apnea tests showing that the patient does not breathe with uh, a hypercarbic and acidotic challenge. And uh, if you are a child, that exam uh, is repeated uh, after at least a 12-hour period. And then if you fulfill those criteria, then you uh, can be declared brain dead. Okay. And and so for all intents and purposes, being brain dead is really no different than being dead in a, a more traditional sense. It's just a different criteria, a different way to get to diagnose it, correct? 
yes, there are two cri two equivalent criteria to declare death: cardiopulmonary criteria or circulatory criteria, and neurologic criteria. And independent of which criteria you fill, they are both equivalent to medical and legal death okay. in the United States. Yeah. So I I think the 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 questions or the confusions that I see most with families uh, are you know things like how can they be dead if their heart is still beating? And also once we complete brain death testing, why can I not then decide that I want to continue treatment? Um, and I think, and I think that's confusing for people because it's sort of non-traditional. So why do we even have brain death criteria at all? Why don't we just say absence of heartbeat cardiopulmonary criteria is sufficient. Oh, the concept of brain death originated in the mid-1950s, 1960s, when there had been the advent of ventilator support um, and after aggressive CPR um, allowed for resuscitation um, in people who previously would have had such critical brain injuries that they were unable to breathe on their own. Um, and so at that point in time, it was identified that these individuals were being maintained by machines, but previously their heart and lungs would have stopped because their brain would not have been telling their lungs to breathe. Uh, and so as a result, it was identified, um, the Harvard report that came out in 1968 uh, was one of the initial reports that addressed the concept of brain death and total brain failure is actually what it was referred to there. And it was identified in the setting of coma in the setting of loss of brainstem reflexes and inability to breathe spontaneously. Okay, so this is really a, a modern problem, right? That that there was no need for this criteria, like you said, prior to the 50s and 60s when we didn't have ways to keep people, quote unquote, alive on machines. Correct, though. Actually, interestingly, there was a paper that came out last year that suggested that there was a philosopher in the 1800s who had suggested the idea of brain death. So even though in principle, this is really a modern problem, apparently there were individuals in the 1800s who were thinking about the concept of death based on loss of brain function as well. Interesting. But it can actually be a difficult, it's, as you stated, it's a, it's a difficult concept for families to understand. On one hand, we are saying they are dead, but their loved one actually looks exactly the same lying in their bed five minutes after the declaration as they did five minutes before. Their chest is still rising and falling. Then, you know, vital signs on the monitor are unchanged. They're still having bodily functions. And it can be sort of a moment of cognitive dissonance for the family as we say, your loved one is dead, uh, but physically they look the same as they did before. Um, and that can take uh, a lot of explanation, and it can be a very difficult concept for people to understand. Yeah, I, and I tell folks, I, I find that even, like I said, even medical professionals who don't deal with this regularly sometimes don't understand it and can get confused by it. So it's not surprising that you know the general public with no medical knowledge would be confused. Uh, now, Matt, you mentioned that the criteria there are multiple criteria that have to be met, including elimination of confounders. Uh, a neurological exam, apnea test, et cetera. Um, why don't walk us through the basic approach to brain death testing. Um, and then I guess in, in that process, let's talk about how the guidelines, the new guidelines that you guys just finished writing differ from maybe what was being done before. The way I conceptualize the process is 
a patient has to have a brain injury, they have to have a catastrophic injury from a known mechanism. If you do not know the mechanism of their brain injury, then you need to do further investigations to figure out what caused the brain injury to ensure that it's not reversible. Then you want to observe the patient for a period of time that is based on the physiology of their injury to ensure that they have no recovery of any brain function. After that period of observation, when you are completely confident that the patient is going to have no recovery of function, then you can initiate the evaluation. And the evaluation has multiple steps. The first step is we need to go through a list of prerequisites to make sure there are no confounding conditions. Hypotension can suppress brain function. Hypothermia can suppress brain function. Medications can suppress brain function. So if we want to get the purest assessment of brain function in this process to declare neurologic death, we want to make sure that none of those confounders exist so that we are getting the most pure assessment of the brain without any possible mimicking or confounding conditions. So there is an entire list uh, that the examiner will go through to make sure the blood pressure, the temperature, medications are cleared, there's no metabolic or endocrinological uh, confounders that may limit our ability to interpret uh, the neurologic exam. And after you go through those and you've met all the criteria, then you do a comprehensive neurologic exam trying to find any evidence of neurologic function. If you do not find any evidence of neurologic function on their exam, then you proceed to the apnea test where you remove the patient from the ventilator and you observe for any evidence of spontaneous respiratory effort while their CO2 climbs, which is the trigger for the brain to breathe. And when you get to a sufficient level, uh, if there has not been any respiratory effort, then you say that the exam is consistent uh, with brain death. And that is uh, an outline of the process. Now, when you say things like hypotension, hypothermia, I don't have to fix their hypotension, right? I can put them on vasopressors to just get their blood pressure up. I don't have to get them to a point where they can be normotensive without support, correct? That is correct. We want to ensure that the brain is seeing an adequate perfusion pressure during the evaluation. So uh, vasopressors, inotropes, fluid, uh, it is permissible to use any of those things in order to restore the blood pressure. The one thing that I will say is it, is it important, it is important after you restore the perfusion pressure to the brain with adequate blood pressure that you then observe the patient for a sufficient amount of time to make sure that they don't have any recovery of function after you have blood pressures that are above the targets in the guidelines. Okay. All right. So you go through this kind of correcting uh, potential confounders and you get them to a place where your their exam is still consistent. Uh, and then you're going to go do a neurological evaluation. So what's a, what all is involved in that? And is that changed with the new guidelines or is this something that stayed the same? So the exam is grossly similar in comparison to the prior in that the assessment is to evaluate for evidence of coma and absence of brainstem uh, reflexes. And so that's not changed from either the prior adult guidelines or the prior pediatric guidelines in terms of what the requirements are. Uh, what has changed is the level of detail in terms of the description of what findings are consistent with brain death and also what the process is to conduct each portion of the evaluation. Okay. So can you quick, just kind of quickly walk us through what that exam looks like now? 
Yeah. So the first aspect of the evaluation is to assess for coma. And so that evaluation requires uh, determination that there's no response to uh, loud voice, uh, to painful stimulation. So at two different places on each limb, uh, that there's no responsiveness to that um, and that there's uh, no responsiveness to painful stimulation, that sternal rub, um, also supraorbitally, um, so that you're evaluating to ensure that there's uh, not any issue related to the cervical cord. So you're evaluating the brain function as well in terms of sensation or the area that the brain would, would uh, affect in terms of sensation. Uh, in terms of the assessment for uh, brainstem reflexes, the pupillary reflex involves shining a light in the eyes to ensure that the pupil size is not changing. In general, in brain dot, the anticipation is that um, pupils are poor or larger um, and non-reactive on either direct or consensual stimulation. Uh, you also want to evaluate the corneal reflex by touching the uh, rim of the sclera to confirm that there is no evidence of the corneal reflex, that the eyelid is not closing at all. Uh, you want to assess for the, uh, for the oculocephalic and oculovestibular reflexes. So uh, injecting 50 cc's of fluid of cold water um, into the ear with the head of bed elevated at 30 degrees and ensuring that uh, the ear canal is patent before doing so. And while doing so, you're evaluating for any eye movements and then doing that and observing for one minute and then waiting five minutes before going to the other ear and doing the same thing there. And then moving the head briskly left and right to ensure that there's no movement of the eyes while that's happening. Irritating the back of the throat um, to look to see whether there's any cough or gag response. Um, so that, that's the basic summary of the assessment for coma and for brainstem reflexes. Okay. And like you said, this is grossly unchanged from before. Um, and you mentioned there were some subtle differences in terms of, um, I think you said definitions and... and uh, so, so the description in terms of what's provided in the text, the goal was to be as, as uh, first to ensure that the examiner is as conservative as possible, but second to be as detailed in the text as possible to address any questions that have arisen um, related to the determination process so that the information is as clear as possible. Conducting this exam and everything is what we would consider consistent with brain death, right? Absence of any brainstem reflexes and stuff. And then we move on to the apnea test. And is that the same currently as, uh, as previously? So the apnea test is also largely unchanged from prior guidelines. We are a bit more proscriptive in these guidelines in terms of uh, how to do it safely, uh, both in adults and in children. Uh, and that includes various techniques for apneic oxygenation to try to prevent hypoxemia and desaturation when you disconnect the patient from the ventilator. The biggest changes in these guidelines is we brought the uh, CO2 criteria that is consistent with brain death uh, together for adults and children, uh, and we added a pH criteria, which were not in the prior guidelines. Okay, and, and what is the pH? What is that pH criteria? So the pH needs to be less than 7.3, and the PaCO2 needs to be greater than 60 and 20 millimeters of mercury above the pre-apnea testing baseline. We also give guidance for patients who have chronic CO2 retention, where their baseline CO2 is both known and not known. Okay, and to clarify, so the the blood gas parameters 
don't establish a positive apnea test. They simply provide evidence that there is a stimulus that, that the patient should have a drive to breathe, correct? Yeah. So when we talk about apnea testing, I don't like talking about a positive and a negative test because I find it uh, confusing. Fair. Uh, I think it is easier to say the test is consistent or not consistent um, with brain death. And so if you have no evidence of respiratory effort and you meet the blood gas criteria, then we say that the apnea test is consistent with brain death. And then if you put that together with a neurologic exam that is consistent after you have excluded all of the confounders, then your entire evaluation would be consistent with brain death. I know a lot of places talk about ancillary testing or some people call them confirmatory testing, although I think that's not preferred. Um, what, what are these tests and when would they be applied? Uh, so in the new guidelines, we provide clear parameters in terms of when ancillary testing should be conducted. So first, we emphasize the fact that brain death determination is a clinical evaluation, first and foremost. And so I, ideally, the evaluation should consist only of the clinical assessment, the clinical examination and the apnea test. Um, if some component of that evaluation can't be completed, for example, if there's been facial trauma, so you're unable to assess the corneal reflex, um, or you're not able to complete the apnea test due to instability, uh, then it's appropriate to proceed with ancillary testing. But it's important to ensure that all aspects of the clinical examination and apnea test that can be completed have been completed. So an ancillary test is not a substitute for the clinical evaluation. In terms of the ancillary tests that can be used, uh, the guidelines indicate that the acceptable ancillary tests are um, in adults, you can use TCDs, transcranial Dopplers, and then in both adults and pediatric patients, uh, you can do a radionuclide study um, or four vessel cerebral angiography. I, I, I think that's a really important point to make that this is not a substitute for an exam. So for example, if a patient were to come in and whatever, for whatever reason needs to go to angio anyway, and you have this exam and you go, well, we don't have any flow. So therefore we're done, right? We're not eliminating the test, the rest of the, the exam, simply because we happen to have a ancillary test data, correct? Correct. Okay. The, in order to make a determination of brain death, it's necessary to conduct the full clinical examination and apnea test to the to the best of your ability. Okay. And I, I see that it says you should not use ancillary testing to assist uh, when there's hypothermia or uh, high levels of medications that depress the CNS. Is there is the concern that the testing may not be reliable in those settings? I uh, so the intent is that. Uh, when the clinical examination and apnea test are being performed, um, as Matt said earlier, you want to make sure that there's no confounding factors that impact the patient's condition. So, for example, with respect to hypothermia, we have clear guidelines that the temperature needs to be greater than 36 to conduct 36 degrees Celsius in order to conduct the clinical examination um, for brain death determination. And that if the temperature has been less than 35.5, then it's necessary to warm the patient up and wait 24 hours before conducting the clinical examination. So this mention with respect to ancillary testing is meant to indicate that you can't try and bypass the rules with respect to excluding confounders for the clinical examination 
and apnea test by saying, I'll just do an ancillary test. So if the patient has been hypothermic, you have to follow the rules that I just mentioned with respect to rewarming the patient. You can't just say, oh, well, I'll just go ahead and do an ancillary test and use that instead of my clinical examination or to sort of supplement my clinical examination because I didn't do my clinical examination in the best circumstances possible. The clinical examination and the apnea test need to be done in the best circumstances possible. And the best circumstances possible means the exclusion of any confounders. So as Matt said earlier, the appropriate blood pressure, the appropriate temperature, uh, insurance that there's no uh, medications that could be impacting the evaluation. Um, or any other factors that could make it appear as though the person is brain dead when they're not. I would think that even, uh, let's say the patient was cold, if you did one of these tests and you showed no cerebral activity or blood flow, that still would reliably denote brain death. Is that not not necessarily true, or we don't have good data in that setting? Or uh, No. So as I emphasized, the clinical evaluation is the most important part of the determination. So you can't just use an ancillary study, a blood flow study, or um, any other type of study to substitute for the clinical evaluation. So if there are circumstances that are not have not excluded confounders to the examination process, then you need to wait until that situation has been fixed. So Yes, you're right that if there's no blood flow when the patient has been cool, then it does suggest that it's unlikely that this patient's going to have any neurologic function. However, that's not an appropriate circumstance in which to declare brain death. Well, that's useful because I think a lot of people were probably doing this. I do see that you asked that they're above 30, 30 or I guess 35.5 degrees. So a patient who's been, let's say, therapeutically cooled to 36 after cardiac arrest, as long as they have not dipped much lower than that, uh, could still potentially be a candidate. So the temperature needs to be 36 degrees Celsius for the examination. And if they have been less than 35.5 degrees Celsius, then it's necessary to rewarm them to 36 and then wait 24 hours once they've been at 36 before conducting the evaluation. The other thing that I think it's important to remember about ancillary testing is that the tests aren't perfect, right? If they were perfect tests, then we would use them for all patients. They have, you know, sensitivities and specificities that have been uh, explored relative to the gold standard of the clinical exam, but they do have a lower limit of detectability. And so that is why it is important to emphasize the clinical nature of the determination. And while even under you know, very CNS depressing medications like, you know, uh, phenobarbital or pentobarbital, uh, we have required in this iteration of the guidelines that those medications be totally eliminated uh, from the system uh, uh, and would perf- and emphasize that a clinical examination is preferential and that ancillary testing should not be used under those circumstances. I think that's a good point because I know uh, I know that that can be a, one of the big confounders that people run into, especially with neurologic injury. You know, there's all sorts of drugs in the patient's system that can confound this. Uh, and so I know there are, I'm sure there are people out there who say, well, we'll, we'll just go to flow, right? We'll just, we can't, we can't do the clinical exam because they have, you know, phenobarbital or they have Ativan, they, they were presumed to have seizures and they got Ativan and it's hanging around. So we'll just go to flow and that's that and be done with it. Um, and, and you're saying that that's not appropriate. You need to clear the drug and do the clinical exam, not use the ancillary testing as a substitute in this case. 
That is exactly right. We have very clearly stated in these guidelines that this is a clinical evaluation and a clinical determination. And it is essential anytime you have a CNS depressing medication in the patient system to wait an adequate period of time to ensure that those medications have been cleared, to wait an additional time to verify that there has been no recovery of brain injury after those medications are out of the patient system and then proceed with your clinical evaluation. Doing a flow study is not a substitute for a neurologic evaluation. It should not be used to just check and see whether the patient is brain dead. We really want to reduce the use of ancillary testing in brain death determination. It is a clinical determination, and when in doubt, the clinical, the clinical examination and the apnea test should be used, and it's essential to wait for all toxins and medications to be cleared and then proceed down that path. And I see as far as drugs go, uh, it suggests now that uh, serum levels of drugs that can be confounding should be negative and, and or you should try to wait five half lives from when they were positive. I, I imagine there are caveats here, right? Not all drugs are measurable in the serum. Some tests may take too long to come back for them to be useful and, uh, you know, it's not always known when things were ingested. And uh, of course, in our critically ill patients, they often have unusual pharmacokinetics. So I imagine these are sort of when, when applicable, uh, useful, but maybe not always. Yeah, so they're definitely when applicable, although I would say always. And this is where we need to work with the pharmacists that are part of our teams. And if it's unclear what uh, substance the patient may have ingested, you need to wait longer. If there are medications that uh, you can't check levels of and the patient has hepatic or renal dysfunction that may impair clearance, you need to wait longer. If it's a medication uh, like pentobarbital that you can check serum levels of, we have recommended that those serum levels be less than five. Uh, and there are national labs which will give you same-day turnaround on drug levels like pentobarbital. If somebody is on chronic anticonvulsants for epilepsy, it is permissible to do the test if the levels are within the usual therapeutic range, since we know that they had a level of neurologic function at that level prior to their catastrophic brain injury. Uh, but most of our patients uh, in the acute brain injury setting are getting bolused with medications for status epilepticus or refractory uh, increased ICP. And in those situations, it is necessary to wait until all of those substances have been cleared from their system. And we recognize that that can take a while, and we recognize that that may lengthen the observation period and lengthen the evaluation period, um, although we think that that is essential for the integrity of the brain death evaluation process to be as conservative as possible. Does that mean that a patient who came in who seemed to have an intoxication, but the substance, or at least one of the substances was not known, could never be declared brain dead? Or does it mean that you would then need to prove that there was some kind of secondary anoxic injury or something, and that would be the proximal cause of death, even if you didn't know what led to that? So, so your point is well taken. Uh, it is likely in some situations that we may not know the toxin or we may not know all of the toxins, uh, but typically the toxin in and of itself is not going to cause the catastrophic 
brain injury, typically the toxin is going to lead to a cardiac arrest, and then they're going to have severe hypoxic ischemic brain injury, and that is going to lead to their cerebral edema and their herniation and make their brain injury compatible with brain death. But prior to doing their evaluation, you need to use your best, best approximation of what substance they may have taken, allow adequate time for clearance, and uh, I always counsel our fellows, when in doubt, just wait an extra day. But if you have, you know, neuroimaging that shows, you know, widespread anoxia and you waited a fair amount of time, you could still declare them in that setting, which I guess would be different from the patient who seemed to take something you didn't know what. They, there were no other obvious signs of brain injury, but they're not doing anything. And now you want to declare them brain dead. That would not be appropriate because you don't know what caused it really. That, that is correct. In the first situation, you know the cause of the injury, which is a hypoxic ischemic post-arrest injury. In the second, you just know you have a comatose patient. You don't know that they have had catastrophic brain injury. And so you need to do the appropriate diagnostic and therapeutic things to see if they will have uh, recovery of brain injury after the toxin gets out of their system or have follow-up neuroimaging to demonstrate that whatever that toxin is has led to uh, structural injury in addition uh, to leading to their comatose clinical state. Yeah, I, I think it, it's an important point worth mentioning. We've, we've talked about how this can be confusing to people, and we've talked about now how um, the ancillary tests, like you said, are not perfect. And so I think it, it is important that we we follow these as closely as we, we can so that we don't add further confusion, right? Because I think we've seen or can at least imagine the situation where a, a family is confused and hesitant to believe that their loved one is, is dead. Uh, and then we do a test that has maybe conflicting results um, that just further confuses the picture and, and maybe adds to uh, some distrust among the families. Because, I mean, we've seen in recent years reports in the news of patients who have been declared brain dead who then are, quote, reversed from that, you know, and, and continue to be maintained um, in a persistent vegetative state. What would you, what would you say to to families who bring stuff like that up uh, and, and maybe are distrustful of the process because of that? So first, I think that it's important to recognize that with respect to stories in the media about uh, recovery from brain death, quote unquote, uh, there's no medical validation of what happened in those stories, meaning that hospitals can't come forwards and say, here's what really happens. Let me explain this to you um, so that we can learn from these cases. So as a result, we don't know whether in these stories, the description of recovery from brain death really means uh, brain death is being equated with just a coma or a vegetative state. So it actually wasn't even brain death or whether there was an inappropriate declaration of brain death. Uh, so I think that, you know, the information in the media with respect to these issues uh, is, is challenging to interpret. One of the things that can be helpful for families in this situation is <clears throat> we often encourage families to observe the evaluation. And by observing the evaluation, the families can see the rigorousness of the process. They can see the extent of the stimulation that we put the patient through in order to try to elicit responses from them. And seeing the apnea test in particular and disconnecting from the ventilator and seeing no evidence of respiration uh, for 10 minutes can be particularly profound for the family and can help them really understand and 
comprehend the severity and irreversibility of the brain injury. Relatedly, it's important to walk the family through the imaging results and show them what normal imaging would look like so that they can understand the extent of injury that's being seen on the imaging. I see that you recommend waiting at least 24 hours before doing any testing. I imagine this is just a a good kind of general buffer, regardless of what the other details are. You think everyone can at least wait that long? So the the recommendation with respect to waiting 24 hours is uh, specific to patients who had hypoxic ischemic brain injury in adults, number one. Uh, Number two is in terms of the observation period, it's challenging broadly to prescribe a specific amount of time that it's necessary to observe all patients prior to brain death declaration because each patient is in their own different specific circumstances, meaning that the etiology of the injury, the extent of their injury, um, and also other factors such as medications, labs, blood pressure, temperature, all can vary. And so the key focus in the guideline was ensuring that we were as conservative as possible. So that's what the main intent is. It's not about prescribing a specific amount of time so much as ensuring that there's as much conservatism as possible. It should never be a rush to make a determination of death. And so it's really important to ensure when conducting the evaluation that there is no question in anyone's mind that this patient has a condition that could be impermanent or or reversible. And I will say as a pediatrician, it is important often, especially in the young infants, to wait even longer. They have open fontanelles, they have unfused sutures, they may not experience the same consequences of refractory increased ICP as somebody with the intact skull. The brainstem is more resistant to hypoxic injury in the infant. So there are some subpopulations where it's important to wait even longer to make sure you don't have any recovery of function prior to proceeding with the evaluation. And I see that you recommend a minimum of one examination, uh, but... from what I read, it sounds like you think it's not a bad idea to do another. It may add additional validity, uh, but you don't necessarily recommend two, which I know is the protocol a lot of places. And if you do two, you don't necessarily suggest a specific interval of time between them. Yeah. So in adults, uh, the 2010 American Academy of Neurology guideline uh, required one, um, one examination to declare brain death. And in this uh, version of the document, as we uh, combine the guidelines for both adults and pediatric patients, uh, the recommendation with respect to the number of examinations, as you're suggesting, changed slightly in that it's necessary to have a minimum of one examination in adults. However, in the interest of practicing conservatism, a second independent examination uh, by a different physician has the potential to uh, decrease the risk of a false, false positive determination. And that's not a requirement that's just noted as you know a recommendation that, that this is something that can decrease the potential for a false positive determination. In contrast, in pediatric patients, the requirement regarding the number of exams is the same as it had been previously, which was two. And with respect to the time period between exams, in adults, it is felt that there's no indication that uh, there should be a need to wait between the two independent exams any period of time, because the key period of time to wait for the observation period is prior to beginning the evaluation. You should not be conducting any clinical examinations for determination of brain death until you think that all of the prerequisites are appropriately met. So you really want to make sure that that's waiting as much time as is needed, whether it be four days or five days or whatever it is, to ensure that there's no other factors that 
could create a circumstance that, that makes the patient appear as though they're brain dead when they're not. And so thus that second exam in adults can be conducted immediately afterwards because there's no reason why we would say we need to wait any specific period of time in between the two exams. In contrast, in pediatric patients, uh, there is a prescribed period of time between the two exams um, to wait to, uh, 12 hours. And that's really uh, with respect to historical deference to the prior guidelines from uh, 2011. Um, and the prior guidelines to that in 1987 in pediatric patients. And the for the people performing these exams, I, I see a specific uh, a bullet point here stating that uh, advanced practice providers, it sounds like may perform exams if appropriately trained and credentialed, which is you know somewhat relevant to Brian and I as we're both APPs. Um, it, it looks like in the past, this maybe just wasn't addressed. This is just specifically kind of laying out who can do this. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, this was not addressed in either the adult or pediatric guidelines previously. Um, the guidelines kind of suggested uh, either only physicians could be conducting the exam or didn't really provide any information with respect to advanced practice providers. But um, as in, in putting these guidelines together, um, it was noted that, you know, there are many hospitals where advanced practice providers are credentialed appropriately in their state and the hospital facility to be able to do the examination. So we wanted to provide clear guidance about the credentials, both for advanced practice providers and for physicians in terms of who is appropriately trained um, and credentialed to conduct the evaluation. You, we were talking about confirmatory testing, and we talked about how no test is absolutely perfect, but we are, you know, suggesting some and not others. For instance, EEGs are no longer recommended ancillary tests, whereas, uh, let's say, nuclear flow studies are. Um, and, you know, I, I know that uh, there is some some literature suggesting nuclear scans might miss some brain, uh, some blood flow, let's say, in the posterior fossa. And so I, I, I guess the idea must be, you tell me if I have it wrong, that no test is perfect, but some are better. So you just have to kind of pick a cutoff for how sensitive and specific you, you know, you believe a test is adds something in, whereas some things fall below that and some fall above it. Is that fair? We have to keep in mind that these are ancillary tests, not confirmatory tests. So they don't make the diagnosis of brain death <clears throat> in patients where there is a component of the exam or the apnea test or the prerequisites that you are, um, um, unable to do or a metabolic factor that you're unable to correct for, then it is permissible to use ancillary testing. And what ancillary, the information that ancillary testing is giving you in that situation is an additional data points about the severity and permanence of the brain injury. The reason why EEG was removed from the most recent guidelines is that is because the most common time when we use ancillary testing is when we are unable to complete the entire neurologic exam or there's parts of it uh, that you're not able to interpret accurately. And so because a majority of the exam focuses on the brainstem, when we do ancillary testing, we want to make sure that that ancillary test gives us some information about the brainstem. When we do EEG, it is primarily cortical responses that we are getting. And so we are trying to substitute a test for a piece of the brainstem exam that we are unable to do. And so just getting a test that gives us information about cortical electrical activity, we felt was insufficient uh, to replace the piece of the examination that was unable to be completed. And so one of the advantages of nuclear medicine studies, particularly if you use a 
lipophilic uh, radio tracer that goes within the blood vessels and gets taken up into the brain tissue, that you get both an assessment of cerebral blood flow and cerebral perfusion. And it actually does give you a, it does give you a reasonable amount of information about the posterior fossa and the brainstem if you look in the lateral projection. So that is why nuclear medicine uh, flow studies are one of the recommended tests uh, as an ancillary test uh, because it does give us information about the brainstem and posterior fossa. And uh, just one final question. As someone who knows nothing about pediatric critical care, it's sort of interesting to see, you know, adult in pediatric guidelines put together, even though there are differences. Um, I, I know there are a lot of maybe detail differences between the two, but is there just a, any kind of broad summary you could make about the differences in brain death in these populations? Is it important physiological differences? Or is a lot of it more about perception or, or history, things like that? So death declaration should be independent of age. We should use the same criteria across the lifespan in order to diagnose death. We should not have different criteria for young children uh, or for elderly people. So one of the um, big intents of this guideline was to have a consistent criteria that is used in people of all ages. Now, as you pointed out, particularly in young children, the physiology of the brain is different than in other people. Uh, and then in older people. And so that may mean that we need to observe for a little bit longer, or you need pediatric or neonatal specialists in order to uh, conduct the examination uh, who are familiar uh, with the neurologic examination in infants and young children. But the definitions are the same. We just have slight differences to account for physiologic differences um, in the young children. But our hope was really to unify brain death uh, so that death determination was consistent uh, for persons of all ages. They're more similar than there is different. Uh, and it's nice to see things unified like that. I, I think often pediatric critical care gets pushed aside into a little kind of balkanized area. But okay, Brian, what else should we say about this? Well, I think there's one other point I want to make because we've been saying things like required and guidelines. And um, I think it's important to point out that unlike... Um, a lot of uh, the other guidelines, right? There's no requirement that I follow the sepsis guidelines, for example. Uh, but these guidelines, actually, there is some legal requirements behind these, right? They may not match up 100% with these guidelines, but death declaration is, is, like we've said, a legal construct. And there's laws in your state that require certain things, correct? Yeah, so this is a really important point. Every hospital has their own brain death policy. And it's really important for providers at ho every hospital to go back to their institutional policy and evaluate what differences there are from the new guidelines and then update their institutional policy to be consistent with the new guidelines. Because as you said, this is a situation where it's imperative that from a legal perspective that the process for the determination of death is consistent with the accepted medical standards. You would never want to find yourself in a situation where you declared death and then subsequently something happened and you know there was recovery of function because you did something that was incorrect or your hospital policy did not include the degree of conservatism that this uh, guideline requires. And then subsequently, when you found yourself in a situation in court where you had to say, yeah, well, our hospital policy isn't consistent with the accepted medical standards, you would obviously never want to be in that situation. So it's important that everyone ensures that they review these guidelines in detail. There's a separate, um, a separate publication that's in 
uh, neurology clinical practice, as well as a publication that's in um, critical care medicine that review the guidelines and the changes in comparison to the prior guidelines. And for everyone to go back after reviewing all this to review their institutional policies and update them accordingly, and then make sure that they then follow those policies and the new updates when they conduct new evaluations. Yeah, I mean, I might even go so far as to say that if there's a conflict between these and your hospital policies, maybe follow the more conservative of the two so that you're, uh, you don't want to be pitting them against each other. Ideally, they'll, they'll match soon, but... Absolutely. We, we found after prior uh, uh, publication of the guidelines, so after publication of the 2010 adult guidelines and after publication of the 2011 pediatric guidelines, hospital policies did not all 100% conform with all aspects of the description in the guidelines. But we are very much hoping that at this point that there will be more concordance in hospital guidelines and that everyone will ensure that their policies are updated accordingly. All right. Well, uh, thank you both for being here. Uh, I know we're, we're kind of running out of time. Um, I think this is a really important topic, not just for those of us who work in neurocritical care, but anyone in critical care uh, is likely to encounter this topic at, at some point or another. We will link the new guidelines uh, along with if you guys have any other resources that you would recommend, we'll link those in the show notes for folks. Um, anything else that you guys final thoughts or that, that you would like to add? This is one of the few things in medicine that has to be done 100% right 100% of the time. And so it is important to update your hospital policy to be consistent with the guidelines, to make sure that you have providers within your institution that are appropriately trained and credentialed in order to do this. There are a number of educational courses, including one that we are putting together through the Neurocritical Care Society to train providers on how to do these evaluations appropriately. There's really no room for error. Uh, when in doubt, stop and ask for help. Good advice. Good advice. Yeah, this is this is like Brandon said, this is not something that you want to wing because there's really no room for error here. So um, anyway, thanks everybody for joining us and um, we'll see you next time. <laughs>